Hello and welcome back to the Basic Bible Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Thompson. And today we're going to be talking about a book that just was uh, released recently at the beginning of the month, Life, Marriage, and Religious Liberty, What Belongs to God and What Belongs to Caesar. And joining us today is one of the contributors to that book, uh, Mr. Bruce Ashford. Uh, Bruce, welcome to our podcast. Hey, it's great to be on uh, on the show. Thanks for having me. And Bruce, you've written a, a number of, of books kind of on this topic, and uh, I know you've done some work with uh, Russell Moore's uh, uh, ERLC in the Southern Baptist Convention, and you teach there at uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and so this is a, a subject you're pretty familiar with. It is. I think it's an important topic. I mean, they tied together um, life and marriage and religious liberty, and uh, so it looks like three topics, but in our cultural context, I mean, those three topics all come together. Well, let's jump right in and talk about religious liberty to begin with, because, uh, you know, I talk to my atheist friends, they're, they're convinced that religious liberty is not even an issue, because Christianity is still the most dominant uh, force in the country, and the religious right still seems to be dominating things. You know, we, we see what's going on in Alabama and Georgia when it comes to these fetal heartbeat bills, and even in the state of Missouri, I was just reading today, that Planned Parenthood will not get their license renewed, and so they may not have any clinics there, or, and I use the word clinics with uh, air quotes if you're watching this, but of course no one's watching this because it's a podcast, um, and they're saying, uh, see, there, there's you've got a Christian president, so really, uh, is, is religious liberty even an issue in this day and age? Yeah, so, I, you know, I would say on the one hand, they're right that we do have free exercise of religion in our nation. We do have, have it uh, guaranteed in the Constitution. And so, and, uh, you know, we do have a, you know, Christian uh, political leaders and so forth. So, I'll, you know, I'll give them that. But on the other hand, we get some short-term and some long-range, uh, short-term and long-term evidence that I think religion in general, and religious liberty in particular, are under fire. Short-term, if you just go back two or three years, there was a document called Peaceful Coexistence released by the United States uh, Commission on Civil Rights. Mm. And in this argument, the majority on the U.S. Commission, um, there were some dissenters, but the majority uh, elevated uh, what is called non-discrimination laws over religious liberty. So they took religious liberty, which is guaranteed in the Constitution, and they demoted it, and they promoted above it non-discrimination laws. So non- non-discrimination laws are kind of vague and ambiguous laws that can be expanded at a moment's notice to include the latest person who has agreement instead of being discriminated against. Of course, we don't want to discriminate in the wrong way against uh, folks. Uh, but, you know, what, what ends up happening, the, the chairman of the Civil Rights Commission, Martin Castro, said something like this in the official document, Peace Coexistence. He said, you know, uh, religious believers use the language of religious liberty as a mask to veil their bigotry, hypocrisy, and uh, hatred and prejudice. I mean, he piled up a bunch of terms there. And I think that is the view of a number of folks mm. that uh, the, the claim to want religious liberty is, is just that. So that's some short-term evidence. Uh, there's some long-term evidence, too, and I want to go upon two thinkers. One is a sociologist named Philip Reef. The other is a philosopher named Charles Taylor. Now, Reef, who passed away in 2007, right before he passed away, he published a book called My Life Among the Death Work. And in this book, Reef, who for the majority of his life had been on the political left, but toward the end of his life moved to the right, 
Reef argued that the West in general, and America in particular, are in the midst of an historic, unprecedented attempt to sever society and its cultural institutions from the influence of religion. That religion is something that's outdated, that humanity is evolving past the need for religion, and so they tried to sever our roots in a religious ordering. And what he argues is that in every civilization in human history, people have recognized that there's a religious ordering that then shapes cultural institutions, such as legal institutions, familial families, uh, educational institutions, and so forth. That there's a religious ordering that shapes those institutions, and that those institutions then shape people. But what Reese argues is uh, that, that there have been a number of elite power brokers um, on the left and the right, but mostly on the left, who have tried to rip uh, the religious ordering out from underneath our, our uh, social order. And he said that the results have been bad and are going to be even more disastrous, that our cultural institutions and cultural products, he called them death works, that they're going to bring death and decay to society instead of life and vitality. Charles Taylor, Canadian philosopher, just very briefly, um, makes a similar argument, but but he focuses in on what it feels like to live in a secular environment where um, religion is downplayed and marginalized. And so what happens is, for Christians, um, that what we believe, which is what many Western people have believed for thousands of years, what we believe is now implausible, even unimaginable, and some people would even say reprehensible. And so uh, it's especially difficult because since our society has rejected transcendent truth, like a truth that's outside of us and above us, and we're supposed to be arguing toward that truth and living toward that truth, since our society's rejected that, they locate truth inside of themselves, you know, whatever I decide is true, or whatever I want is my truth. Uh, Since we've done that, then when anyone criticizes another person, the person receives the criticism as hatred. You've criticized their truth. You've criticized something inside of them. But I think that, that I mean, I, I think there's something to that. I think Taylor and Reef are right. And for that reason, I think there is a reason to, to, to be on guard and protect religious liberty. Yeah, and that's really, um, you really hit the, the nail on the head there when talking about just the idea of well, personal truth is now um, certainly placed above any sort of well, there is no transcendent truth. There, there is no uh, grand narrative. There is no um, truth that is true in all places at all times. So, because it becomes it, so because it is an internal truth, my criticism of whether it's homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion, whatever, now becomes not just a political issue or not just a debate over what is true, but now I am attacking someone personally, and that becomes a whole different issue. It does, because when you do that, there's nothing left in society but to shout each other down, right? And, and that's what we're seeing. I mean, take a look at your Facebook page or you know, the comment section that mm. a Fox News article or CNN article or you just have people kind of unhinged just shouting each other down. And what we've got to do is we have got to show a better way as Christians. I think we've got to have this combination of truth and grace that Christ exhibited, um, truth without grace makes us political bullies and jerks, uh, grace without truth makes us political wimps and non-entities, but truth and grace together is the powerful combination that Christ himself exhibited, and I think the Apostle Paul and 
another disciples, and we, we want to exhibit that too. So this book in particular is kind of an, I don't want to say an update, but a, a re-look at the Manhattan Declaration from 10 years ago. And when I was reading this, I thought, man, it's, it's only been, it's been 10 years. Um, it, it seems a lot, I'm getting older, but um, tell our listeners, those who, who may not be familiar with this, uh, what is the Manhattan Document? And um, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the uh, the Manhattan Declaration was a group of um, uh, thought leaders and educational leaders and religious leaders who got together to, uh, if I could just put it in general terms for folks who are out there in podcast land, to stake their, put their flag in the ground and say, listen, uh, as Christians and as people who seek the common good of our nation, um, we want to put everyone on alert that we're in danger as a culture of losing some things that are very precious to us, religious liberty first and foremost among them. And like you said, I mean, it's only been 10 years since it was written, but culturally it feels like it's been almost 100. Right. There's been a lot of changes in the past uh, 10 years, socially, culturally, and politically. So, all right, let's talk about your, uh, your contribution to this book in particular. We're talking about uh, children in relation to family and state. And you mentioned uh, already the, the quote from, from Charles Taylor about kind of where we're going as a society and as a culture, as, as Christianity, is, is certainly not the dominant uh, influence it once was. In fact, now it's, as you said, it's practically inconceivable in the secular mind that any of this stuff could be true. And so we're, we're raising children in this age where literally you have... Guys like uh, you quote Richard Dawkins, but we could also look at guys like uh, uh, guys like Bill Nye, who are, are, are teaching that you teach your kids creationism, you're basically uh, abusing them. You're guilty of child abuse, and we have a real serious problem of, and, and, I, and I've noticed this quite a bit being in in education, to where children now are considered almost kind of wards of the state. Where it's the state that's seeking to to raise children, not just families, and we're moving away from uh, a family-centered society to a would you would you think it's fair to say we're moving from a a family-centered society to a more government-centered society? Yeah, very fair to say. You know, the family is the first institution to appear in the Bible and in history. It's the most basic and fundamental unit of society. The individual is not the most fundamental unit. Uh, a lot of people in the West don't believe that. They're individualists. But the family is the most basic unit in society, I believe. And the family's health is the surest indicator of society's health. Hmm. If family's under siege, then that means society is under siege. And uh, that's, I think that's what we're seeing right now. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, there are folks out there that when they find out that a parent is refusing to allow their 11-year-old to have gender, to have hormone therapy yeah. or reassignment surgery to become the opposite sex, or if the parents are not approving of a, a, a young man's desire to live an openly uh, gay lifestyle or whatever, I think, you know, there's a number of folks who, uh, secular folks, who generally think, well, this family must just be hateful. This one just must be bigoted, and, and they need to. Government needs to step in and take these kids out of this dangerous situation, yeah. because there's not a whole lot of 
understanding left, I think, of what Christianity is and, it, and its uh, fundamental goodness. So mm-hmm. we've got to do a good job of speaking the gospel and letting out the gospel, and that's a social renewal, a revival, yeah. to use a good Jonathan Edwards word. And we also have to do a good job uh, with legal reform and uh, legally protecting our, uh, our rights our, to exercise um, our freedom of religion. Talk to us a little bit about, you mentioned the Kuyperian uh, view of sphere sovereignty, how yeah. God has ordained different institutions, the church, the state, and the family, and they all have within their <clears throat> different spheres uh, issues over which they are sovereign, and, and, and there is some interplay in between those, but how does that, re- that, that concept relate to what we're talking about? Yeah, so those of you out there in podcast land, this is uh, this is a really fascinating concept, and I hope you'll lock in. So there was a uh, great uh, Reformed evangelical uh, pastor, Dutch pastor named Abraham Kuyper, Father Abraham, I call him, hmm. and uh, who, who later founded a political party, founded a university, founded a newspaper, and ended up being the prime minister of the Netherlands. And he had a lot of thought to the interface of Christianity and culture and Christianity and politics. And he said something like this. He said, listen, if you look at patterns in the Bible and patterns in history, you kind of put that together, you can see that God not only created different kinds of animal or different kinds of, you know, trees and inanimate matter, but he also created different kinds of culture. And he used a spatial analogy and said that each kind of culture is like a sphere, a sphere that you would throw, but a sphere. And, uh, and he said each, so there's different kinds of culture, like art, science, politics, uh, you know, religion in the church, marriage and family, business and entrepreneurship, sports and competition. You have these different spheres of culture. Each one has its own center and its own circumference. So each has its own center, meaning it has its own reason for being. You know, art exists for a different reason than government. And a local church exists for a different reason than an art school. So they each have their own reason for being, but because of that, if you draw a line from the center, uh, you'll find that there's a circumference for each sphere. So there's, each sphere has a limit to its jurisdiction. You know, God uh, cre- uh, created the world to have the arts for a reason, but the arts reach a limit of what they can do. Artists are not created to govern, <laughs> and uh, vice versa. The government reaches a limit. The, the, the government has no business uh, reaching its, as Kuiper said, like a being like a giant octopus reaching its tentacles into the other spheres and, and messing in those spheres' business. And Kuiper's view of sphere sovereignty, which I've promoted in my most recent book called Letters to an American Christian, very easy to read, 27 brief letters to an American Christian dealing with every hot-button issue in American politics. But as I've argued in there, if you want to be able to read it, that his view of sphere sovereignty helps us argue for religious liberty and helps us argue for, for a more minimal view of government. That government does have a unique purpose, that God intends for there to be a government, Romans 13, but that uh, there are limits to what the government should do. And um, I do think we should be afraid that the government will become like a giant octopus. Already has, in yeah. some ways, reaching its tentacles into our homes, in our churches, our businesses, and so forth. So how has the government crept in and, and started, specifically in regards to children, 
Uh, how has the government begun to usurp the authority of the family? Yeah, so you've got a few instances, not a ton of them, but a few instances already where a child has, uh, I think the transgender activism yeah. over the past uh, two or three years has really brought some of this to the surface because transgenderism is so contrary to you know God's creational design. It is one of the last stages of a um, decadence in our culture that uh, one of the most basic moral intuitions and uh, that we have, or one of the most basic truths that we know is that uh, there are two genders. Mm. You have men and you have women. And you have some people who have genders for you and are experiencing some confusion about which gender there are, but there aren't five or six or seven genders. Uh, but, so because of transgender activism, you've got young people, children who are five years old in some of these stories, 10 years old or 12 years old, who are seeking to um, align their gender identity uh, differently than their physiological sex. And when a parent doesn't affirm that, there are some instances where the court has stepped in and moved the, the child out of the home. To the credit of the courts, they've tended to move the child to a grandparent's home or an aunt or an uncle. Um, uh, but still, it's a violation of a parent's right. Not only a parent's right, but a parent's responsibility to guide their children morally, spiritually, physically, emotionally. Um, now, there are some instances where the government can step in. Uh, Kuiper named three instances where the government can intervene in other spheres, but they're very limited. There is, uh, sometimes there uh, will be, within a sphere, you'll have, uh, the government will need to protect the weak from the strong. Right. So if you have a father abusing his daughter, the government can and should step in, you know, beating her or sexually abusing. You also have instances where there are conflicts between the spheres. So, for example, if you have a businessman who wants to open a strip club next to an elementary school, the government has every right, and I think the responsibility to stuff it think, no, we're zoning this, so you can't build this here. You can build your strip club in the woods or, or wherever, but not next to an elementary school. And I would actually argue that it would be okay for the government to, to, uh, to rule out those sorts of businesses altogether to make them illegal. And then uh, third is you've got some instances where there's a matter of interest to all of the spheres. So, for example, roads. It's fine for the government to take care of roads because it's something that services all the different spheres. But those are limited instances, and um, we've gone far past that in Europe and the United States, and we need to roll back some of the enormity of the government. So how – and you've written a lot about this as, as I'm looking. In fact, as, as we've been talking, I've actually been ordering several of your books on Amazon if you're hearing these little clicks. Um because I'm, I'm mm, that warms the cockles of my soul. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're we're coming up even on July Fourth, and there's a lot of talk about, you know, where's that line between uh, political activism and Christianity? Uh, so, how can Christians get involved? Christ, members of the church, to what degree should they get involved here in the political process? Yeah. So, listen, um, we live in a democratic republic. We're sort of written into the Constitution. Thank you for not democracy, by the way. Say that again? Thank you for not saying democracy. For not saying democracy? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so we're we're in a situation where written into our Constitution is the expectation that citizens will care enough 
to speak up on matters of import and to vote when there's an election, to engage in coffee shop conversations, and these days maybe even Facebook conversations if you have to, about matters of significance. And as Christians, I mean, unless you have a pressing reason not to, my question would just be, why wouldn't you? I mean, out of a concern for the common good, out of a desire to be a witness for Christ in the public square, why would we not speak up on behalf of what is right and good? Now, there is a temptation that I certainly understand to just kind of walk away from it all, because, I mean, just the idiocy, the all-encompassing idiocy right now of our public discourse. People are just busy mocking each other and lying and telling partial truths, uh, taking everyone on the other side of a political aisle, taking all of the character flaws that have ever been exhibited by anyone on that side of the aisle, putting them into a conglomerate, and then assuming that every person on the other side of the aisle exhibits all of those character flaws. I mean, that sort of idiocy is unsustainable. It'll burn the country to the ground. But uh, instead of walking away from the process when when we see that, instead of becoming cynical, you know, we ought to recognize that God calls us to be public witnesses not because we're going to win. You know, we may not win. We may, we may not. God doesn't guarantee that. We do it out of witness and as, out of obedience and as a preview of his coming kingdom. So, you know, a preview. You, you Sometimes you'll be watching TV, say watching a ball game maybe, or maybe watching The Office or Parks and Rec, uh, just just to put that in there, and all of a sudden a commercial comes on uh, for a movie that's going to come out later, you know, in the summer or at Christmas time. And what the, the director and producer of the movie do is they take the two or three best scenes in the movie, maybe the only two or three good scenes in the movie, and they put them all together in a 30-second or one-minute clip and that makes you want to go and see the movie. And as believers, we want our life to be like uh, to be a preview of God's coming kingdom. That if people see the way we live, the way we speak, the way we relate to one another, the way we jump in to seek the common good for our nation, that that should be a preview of God's coming kingdom. When justice will roll down like the waters, when Christ will return to set the world to rights, and where there will be peace and order and love and justice, and that should be our goal. And you know, not to we're already coming up on uh, up on our time here. But then uh, the opposite, and we can do this without being, and I, and I even hate this term, you know, social justice warriors or uh, some uh-huh. calling cultural Marxists or whatnot. Um, it, it seems like there's always that extreme to to be avoided. But uh, as Christians, we should be involved in the political process. We should be even running for office. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that we're looking to create a theocracy or trying to uh, turn America back to God or, 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 you know, Donald Trump is our savior or anything like that. But we can we can get involved and still maintain our, our, our Christian witness and prophetic voice. Absolutely. I mean, there's all kinds of dangers. Theocratic, you know, temptations where we want to kind of force our Christianity on the entire nation. But, you know, we don't want to do that. The gospel is freely given and freely received. And we want people to embrace Christ because they want to. So we want to use persuasion rather than coercion. You know, theocracy is one um, a ditch we want to avoid. Another is, you know, cultural Marxism is a phrase. I mean, Marxism, uh, Marx taught that 
just very quickly that um, um, history was determined by economic forces, not by God, but by economic forces, and that people were determined by their economic class. So um, if you are a rich person, your thinking was so determined by your economic class that you weren't really a person to be reasoned with. You're an obstacle to be crushed. And you've got some folks now who have who have said, well, you know what Marx says about economics, we say about gender, or sex, mm. or even race. And so we've got to be careful that when we act in public, we're doing this in a way framed by Christian thinking and not by someone like Paul Marx, who was out to absolutely destroy the Christian faith. He made no bones about it. He was an atheist, and he created the Marxist ideology is a kind of a blow-by-blow antithesis to the Christian faith. So all of that said, I think you put it really well. Uh, we do this as Christians. We want to try to avoid the dangers, but we're, we're called by God to do it, I think. All right, we end each of our podcasts talking about recommended resources. And, of course, the main book that we're promoting today is Life, Marriage, and Religious Liberty, What Belongs to God, What Belongs to Caesar, Essays for the, on the 10th Anniversary of the Manhattan Declaration. And our uh, our guest here is one of the contributors to that, uh, Bruce Ashford. And, and Bruce, you also have several other books. Again, uh, I have this one actually right in my library. I'm looking at it right now. A little small book, under, uh, One Nation Under God, A Christian Hope for American Politics. And then uh, the two books I just ordered as we were talking. And this book looks really fascinating to me, Every Square Inch, An Introduction to Cultural Engagement for Christians. And uh, from what I'm reading in your in your synopsis here is that the second part of this book goes over some important uh, biographies of guys like Francis Schaeffer, C.S. Lewis, so I'm literally looking forward to that. And then your new book here, Letters to an American Christian, and uh, I hope you go out and, and purchase Do you want to say anything about those any of those resources before we uh, sign off? Yeah, yeah, sure, I'll do it quickly. Every Square Inch is a gift-sized book that is an introduction to cultural engagement, and so it. uh gives you a, a brief little chapter on the interface of Christianity and culture in general, and it has little chapters on art and science and religion and politics and so forth. One Nation Under God is also a gift-sized book that is an introduction to Christianity and politics. And then Letters to an American Christian is a series of letters that I wrote to a hypothetical, uh, newly converted Christian who wanted to know how to grapple with the social, cultural, and political turmoil that ran right now in the United States. And so it's uh, 27 very brief letters, that, uh, and it was a fun format because I was able to joke and make cultural references, and just mm-hmm. a lot of fun. But uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been a joy. Well, yeah, thank you for coming, and I'm looking forward to these books, and I'm hoping maybe you'll come back on the podcast and, and continue this conversation because we've, we've just barely scratched the surface on this issue. That's a deal. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. And so we'll have links to all those resources on our website. Also a link to BruceAshford.net where you can uh, look at all of these books. And there, there are several others as well. Look at blogs, audio, video, all of this stuff. Uh, and I hope you'll do that. That's BruceAshford.net. And so again, Bruce, thank you for joining us. Thank all of you for joining us. Next week we'll be right back with our series on the Ten Commandments. So you don't want to miss that. And until then, don't forget our website, www.BasicBiblePodcast.org. And check us out on Twitter at Basic Biblecast. So until next week, have a great rest of your week.